we are human. We're vain. We're driven by our ego. Humans want to go climb Everest because they want to shine to their fellow humans. the adventure podcast and episode 81 with one of the world's elite alpinists comrade anchor some of comrade's achievements in the world of mountaineering include summiting everest without the aid of supplemental oxygen a first ascent of meru's shark fin multiple antarctica expeditions and various ascents of el cap in yosemite national park but he's much more than just a climber he's an activist a mentor and a family man We've released an episode with Comrade before. Those of you who listen regularly will likely recall the harrowing, heartbreaking and hopeful conversation that happened just 24 hours after three of Comrade's friends were killed in an avalanche. But this conversation is mostly lighter than that one. I was working on a photo shoot with Comrade in Chamonix and in the transfer bus from the airport he suggested we record another podcast. I sat there and thought, one episode with Comrade Anchor was a good tick in my book, but two is something else. So I decided to just hand the reins over to Comrade to discuss topics and issues that are important to him. We touch on long-debated topics like footfall on Everest, to mentorship and living up to people's expectations. We talk about the accessibility of the mountains, how mountaineering has changed over the years, self-reflection and the four stages of life. It's been said many times that you should never meet your heroes, but if the last decade of adventure filmmaking and the last few years of podcast have taught me anything, it's that you definitely should, as you never know when they might just become your friends instead. Okay, over to Comrade Anchor. Okay, we can rock and roll. So thanks for sitting down with me again. It's been an interesting week hanging out. Yeah, Maddie Pycroft. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here we are. What is it? Uh, It was April 17th, 2019. We sat down in a hotel room. And now what was the wonderful village we were at? I can't remember. Were we... Oh, God, we were north of London somewhere. Yeah, but it had like three churches and I was hanging out and one of them had a a whole bunch of was built out of different types of rock and it had the most buff and cut Jesus figurine I was like that guy's definitely into CrossFit (laughs) (laughs) but it was good we were traveling around and being there with you and I was uh, with our good friend and uh, uh, on the edge speakers so yeah what's his name Dion Dion, Dion, how are you doing? You're the man. <laughs> Thanks for bringing us together. So, Yeah. And can you just go back into that conversation a little bit and what was happening at the time and where we went with it all? Yeah. Um, so we'd planned to uh, meet up and have a podcast. I was in the UK with Dion doing a slideshow tour. And as I was driving to the next destination, a phone call came up and it was 
one of those calls, and I could tell who it was from, and at the time that it was one of those calls, which is there's been a loss in the mountains. And we had our podcast in between incident and confirmation of fatality, so there was that unknown, but it was a very emotional one and still one of the more meaningful podcasts I've had the opportunity to do. Yeah. And yeah, I remember it was very, very difficult. You had to break halfway through to take a call and yeah, very emotional time. Yeah. We play with fire and that's the beauty of it, but it's also the very unfortunate costs that family, loved ones, close friends must bear when there's loss in the mountains. Yeah. And today, I mean, maybe we'll touch on the difficult side of things too, but maybe talking about something more hopeful. Um, yeah, let's... <laughs> and a little lighter. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe you could just give um, those listening a little background on where we are, what we've been up to this past week, and what's yeah. brought us together. Sounds good. We're here in the Chamonix Valley, and it's beautiful. It's the third week in October, and the weather has been clear and dry. And we're here courtesy of Yeti Coolers, a company I've been working with for the past seven years. And um, Maddie, your outfit, Cold House, is uh, partnering with us to create content. We're introducing the brand to Europe, and we also have a new color coming out this spring. And um, yeah, it was more than anything a chance to meet up with friends. Uh, Chris Erickson, who is a friend of mine from Montana, lives in Chamonix with his wife and daughter and is a mountain guide. And the ebullient Leo holding. <laughs> it's always good to get a little bit of Leo's energy. Yeah. Cool. So I'm kind of going to hand over to you in a way. What is it that you would like to talk about today? Oh, gosh. We could... Um, there's so many different things. But part of it was here in Chamonix. And we were over on the Cormier side. We took the Skyway up to the Torino Refuge and then climbed the Antiveros Traverse and... It was um, creating media. It's what I do. It's part of, part and parcel of being a professional climber. But we had a conversation about accessibility, and what we did here is not available in North America. There is no cable car that goes up to a glaciated peak, and especially one with granite towers on it. So glaciers in North America, there's a pocket of them in the North Cascades, but it's a national park, and Mount Rainier is a volcano, so it doesn't have the, the granite spires, the agis that we see here, and so along those lines. And we had a very nice conversation at the hut about how this accessibility has really was a flywheel for creative innovation within the climbing scene. And in the 80s and 90s, when I was coming of age of climbing, I spent the winter of 91 here. Um, this was the place. There was um, harder climbs. There was faster climbs. The enchainment, linking of one face to another, parapenting, ski descents, hard free climbing at altitude. I mean, all these things that the digital crack, the Grand Cup of Scene, all those things were the shroud getting skied. They were all part of that narrative of where I saw that. And so there's always been a tremendous amount of respect for this valley and what it's been able to do for mountaineering. And within that context, we were talking about this arcane, selfish pursuit that we have, this game of gravity that 
we never leave behind and how it's constantly changing. And the conversation circled around to Nepal and India, Pakistan, Bhutan, Tibet, the nations that are the home of the Himalayas, Himalaya in Nepali. I'll go with the American double vowel pronunciation of the vowel A, but uh, the uh, Himal and how things have changed there. And uh, there are a couple of recent things that um, of note since we were together. One was the uh, 14 8,000 meter peaks in a seven month period. And the other one was the first winter ascent of K2. And both of these, the the motivational engine behind that is NIMS uh, from NIMSDAI, NIMS Purja from Nepal. And we were talking about how things have changed and what this type of climbing and specifically high altitude expedition climbing. And you know, are we coming back to conquering the mountains through sheer force, expedition style, or what's what's the worth in it? What's the value? And then how does this play to the communities of Nepal and Southeast Asia? And how do you think, or what impact do you think NIMS as a sense have had on that culture and community? And is it significant? Yeah. Um, so before we look at NIMS connection, and I, I have a paper thin understanding of Nepali culture, and even having been there for pretty much every year since 1988, the last year and a half, excepting due to COVID, it's been a, an important part of who I am. But I don't profess to be any Nepali expert or anything like that. And um, but the um, my underlying foundation in mountaineering is one, do no harm to other humans. And we have to be mindful of that. And even accidental injuries are something that we want to be mindful of. And then try to um, respect the mountain and, and whatever technique that you use, know that it is and be clear about it and, and, and know how it is. And, and things have certainly changed. We have the advent of the Seven Summit type of climber, which isn't a bad thing. I'd rather those people climb mountains than hunt Bengal tigers, for instance, or Siberian tigers or elephants or rhinoceros. Or I mean, yeah, you don't need to kill something to boost your ego. Just get close to killing yourself and your ego will be much more solid with that. So I have I see the mountains as a very open place and how you interpret them and how you enjoy them is up to you and that you, if you are respectful of other people. And within that framework, I don't want to be overly judgmental. So if someone's new to the climbing gym and they're, they look like they're new to the climbing gym, rather than kind of being harsh on them or kind of judging them, welcoming them into that. And part of that is um, I like to surf. I'm very much a novice surfer, but when you go out to a break, it's very difficult. There's a lot of energy, a lot of the vibe of like, where's the wave and how you get into the wave and where you are in the lineup. And I try to come out and be like, hey, I'm a novice and kind of give me a little space. <laughs> but the best surfers get the best waves and there's not that, it's hard to really have like an introductory climbing area or a climbing gym for surfing, maybe with the advent of surf parks coming in there. But they're 
and no umbrage to the surfing community, but I'm like coming back from surfing and I'm like, oh gosh, I, mean, like I had a little bit of fun, but I kind of felt like, gosh, I shouldn't be here. I'm not welcome. And, and how do we change those things? And so to change that from a, in a climbing perspective, that we are all welcoming, that if you want to climb, come be part of this community and, and do that. And part of that is the medium that we're on. So if we go to the climb up in Valor scene here today, that climb was the same climb I climbed in 1991. The holds are there, the hardware's still there, am I stronger or weaker, but it's a constant. But if you're surfing or powder skiing, it's very conditions dependent. And if you're not there at that right time, then you're not getting the goods. And so it's not just like where we find the best time or we're at peak performance to get our send in there that you have to be there at peak performance and the conditions need to be right for a ski descent or for a surf. And so that kind of builds a uh, something in there. But um, yeah, they're to welcome people into that. But to um, NIMS and the ascent of um, the 14, 8,000 meter peaks and, and um, the ascent of K2. And part of this is um, the how we approach the mountains. And um, Himalayan alpine style, as espoused by Doug Scott, um, rest in peace, you genius and wonderful man and mentor to the community, was um, that we go up with your rack, your sack, and the food in your pack, so to say, and you just climb it and come back down. Um, but prior to this, the Himalayan giants were all climbed in a very expedition style. Goes back to the very early expeditions on Everest, um, the, the undertones of colonialism, the employment of indigenous people, and then moving a set of camps up the mountain, finally getting to within striking distance and then making that up, making it to the top. And then we'll use Everest as an example um, from 53 when it was first climbed uh, up until about 1988 or something. There was it was always very much a um, it was a national team, so the Italians would come, or the Slovenians, or the Poles, or the United States, or India. So it was organized along those times. And then it sort of came into a commercial where you might have a, an insurance company or a banking concern that would then underwrite the expedition for a, um, for a specific goal. And then in the, ad, then in the late 80s, early 90s, was commercial climbing. And that has changed the fabric of, of how we approach these mountains. And if we look at Mount Everest, Chomolungma, Mother Goddess of the Snows, as an example, that the southeast buttress and the northeast ridge, the two most popular routes, the Nepal side being the southeast buttress, and it's got fixed rope from when you enter the ice fall. Um, it's no fixed rope on the Western Coombe because it's flat, but there's bridges over the crevasses, and then there's fixed rope up the Lotse face, and there's pretty much fixed rope from the balcony all the way up to the summit through the second step, and then back down again. And that lifeline of accessibility, which then becomes the railroad track for the cargo that the Nepali, specifically the Sherpa ethnic group, carry up the mountain for the people that are going to the summit. And so that style of climbing being born out of a commercial interest, people wanting to climb the mountain but not having the ability or relying on the people that are there to do the work for them has uh, changed that. Yeah. And so 
ethically, how do you feel about the way that we currently approach the big mountains? The, the popular routes say the standard route on K2, the standard two routes on Everest, um, Shishapangwa, Manaslu, those Amadablam, they kind of see the vast majority of that. And they receive a vast amount of attention. It's the same thing with the West Buttress on Denali. You're in there with a large group of people. There's fixed lines on it. And that's the way climbing has evolved. But I'm not going to grouse about that style of climbing. If I want a real adventure, I can go try the Fantasy Ridge from the northeast face of Everest, the last unclimbed big challenge on Everest. Or if I want to try something that's more along my own lines, I can seek them out. But I'm not one to say that's inherently wrong because that style of climbing, I've seen it benefit the Nepali community and, and how that works out. It's a car accident. European sirens are different than they are in the States. <laughs> I hope they're not too hurt. Okay, we're good. Where were we? Um, so, before we go on to discuss the specific achievement, can you please just explain exactly what NIMS did? Yes, so NIMS set out in uh, 2019 to... Uh, climb the seven summits, so we um, broke it up into two parts. So there's uh, 14, not the seven summits, there's 14 8,000 meter peaks. And the fastest that had been done is, is in a period of, um, of uh, seven or eight years. And they were able to do it in under seven months, Nims and his team. And uh, yeah, helicopter assist, um, but it was all Nepali team. That was, those guys were out there climbing. And um, it, uh, yeah, if the same thing had happened with a climber from Chamonix or Tahoe or Telluride or Boulder or Bozeman, someplace in the States or wherever, Berchtesgaden, someone that was a, a skilled alpinist, then it would be a different standard perhaps of, than what we would see with that. So they, they kept after it and they did the... Um, the first seven peaks and the monsoon came and then they finished up with the seven ladder. And so there was, um, yeah, a lot of ways that they were um, successful. It wasn't anything new or groundbreaking in the climbs that they did, but for on, on peaks like Annapurna and K2, they were sort of the, the teams that opened up the route for subsequent ascents that season, which is um, kind of in that same way. So it was, um, and Nims is a great guy. We, we met in Kathmandu and, I was an early proponent of of him and, and supporting him in that um, they were aiming to do this. And part of that context is what mountaineering is to the nation of Nepal. And Nepal, as we know, is a small landlocked nation of approximately 27 million people caught in this geopolitical vice between India to the south and China to the north. And within that, this physical barrier that for millennial has defined migration, ethnicity, religion. Before, humans really couldn't get over the Himalaya. It was a real challenge, and it was a physical hindrance, and there was no need. I mean, why go climbing, or why try to get over these glaciated, forested mountains when life can be not easier, but more balanced in ways to bring food to your people. 
so living at lower elevation, that is. And in mountains were some of the last places for humans to come into. We were able to adapt to the deserts and the high Arctic before we got into the mountains. And within that, they've always been revered and everything like that. So part of podcasting is this, like every time we have a question, it's you take your plane off and then you're like <laughs> circle around. You might go through the clouds. We always got to land the question with an answer on there. So I started out outlining what Nims and his team did on the seven, 8,000 meter summits and, and what it meant to the people of Southeast Asia and seeing the crowd support, people donating a pound here, um, or a dollar there, and just a lot of people behind it, and not necessarily big, huge, massive brands that were um, then working on this. And within that, there's sort of this, the Nepali-guided style of climbing big mountains, and they've perfected it. I've been part of it. I've, I, I recognize it, and that um, all those kind of coincidences building into it really make a little bit of... Uh, they, they make they make sense. And if it had been a middle-class white dude from Britain or America, do you think people would have rallied around it the same way? Hard to say. I mean, it, it, um, it, of course, if it was someone that didn't come from the fold of climbing, the, the climbing cognoscenti, the, the gatekeepers of authenticity and style would be grousing about it and like, no, it's not real. They should have done it a different way. And But if it was supported by a soap manufacturer and they were putting the flywheel out, people that were only had a peripheral knowledge of climbing would think it's like the coolest thing. But the fact that both these landmarks, the speed accumulation of the 8,000 meter peaks and the winter ascent of K2 were done by a Nepali team, to me is indicative of a transition that we're seeing in Himalayan climbing by the indigenous cultures. Yeah, which obviously resonates and and transcends mountaineering and and um, drifts into popular culture and mainstream politics, right? Yeah, and it's a popular thing. And coming back to Nepal, we were talking about it being a landlocked nation, but they don't have. Um, there's not a tremendous amount of natural resources. Um, there's no oil in there. There's no. As a result of the plate tectonics and the rise in the Himalayas, the one thing they do have is beautiful mountains, and that is. Um, Tourism is um, second to foreign remittances of Nepali workers working in Southeast Asia and the Mideast is the is a big part of the Nepali economy. Yeah. And obviously you talk a bit about how you've been involved in that place for a very long time now. Can you talk a bit about the Kumbu Climbing Centre, where it came from and what it is and why it matters to you? Yeah. Um, 1999, was um, I was invited to Everest for the Mallory and Irvine Research Expedition. Um, that was uh, Eric Simonson, the leader, and Dave Hahn. And with two weeks to go, I was like, hey, do you want to go to Everest? <laughs> I'd always wanted to, but I didn't think I was skilled enough or I didn't, I wasn't a guide. I'd been to 7,000 meters, but I hadn't been that high. So I jumped at the opportunity and um, it was um, a momentous day for me personally on the 1st of May, 1999, when I covered um, came across the body of Mallory, but all of that wouldn't have been possible without the Sherpas that we're working with. And the village that these this team came from was Fortse. And so Dave and Eric had worked with them over time. And um, one fellow, Panuru, became a close friend of mine. So we 
we were friends, and we, um, I'd been through Fort Say in 1990. I'd, I'd worked with people there. I'd, I'd checked it out. I'd been there a few times since then, but there wasn't a close connection. And for me, it was like I wouldn't have made that, been part of that expedition if it wasn't for the Sherpa people that we're working with. And to recognize that and also to knowing their culture from a, afar, what is mountaineering to them and how does that work with them? And yeah, and so how did you end up then going on to establish the center? In 2002, um, Jennifer, uh, my wonderful wife and I were trekking to Mount Everest Base Camp. Um, I was as a trekking guide and um, not working on the mountain. But um, yeah, every day after we'd get to camp and it was a slow moving, well fed trek, uh, as things tend to be. But I would, the, the team that I was working with, uh, Rinji was in uh, a couple other Sherpa that I was with, I'd go, let's go climbing after work. So we'd set up top ropes. Um, there wasn't fixed gear type things. We'd find a little ice climb to go at. And it became this thing towards the end of the trip, like the team would like move faster, get to camp earlier. So we'd have more time climbing and everyone was just, and it was this epiphany, like they really like climbing in the same way that I do. Like I wake up in the morning and my factory setting says, climb <laughs> what I was born with so and I enjoy it and it's given me great meaning in life and that same passion was there with these Nepali climbers and um, so continuing on 2003 I was on north side of Everest again and saw Panuru and we were kind of like brainstorming over a cup of tea and when we uh, this seeing that if you are passionate about climbing and you care about the craft, then you will be a safer, better climber. If you come to it from a vocational standpoint, like this is your job, this is your work, then it's a little bit different. But if it's an avocation, like you do it for restorative, meaningful, like it's part of what you live for is to go climbing, you'll be a better climber and you'll be more understanding of the mountain environment. And so the goal was to increase climbing skills in a community setting through recreational climbing and then building into that the skills that are needed. So um, 2003, 2004, um, it was the beginning of the first class. And the, the program was based in Fort Say, which is a day's walk from, or a half day for a, a, a teenager in Nepal, but from Namche, it's the next stage up from Namche Bazaar. And the beautiful thing, in the wintertime, there's a lot of frozen waterfalls. And when I was a young climber, the, the goal was, well, you climb bad rock so you can be better at climbing bad rock when you encounter it in the mountains. So not like we would seek out Chas, but we would understand it. Same thing with off-width climbing. But ice climbing was always this way. When you climb frozen waterfalls and these ephemeral drips coming off the mountain that are in a constant state of flux, you have to be on your game or things are going to fall down. So we would train on steep waterfalls. And then when you got up to the Alpine and you're on 60 degree neve, you've already trained yourself psychologically for something that's more difficult. And that ends up being a good way. And the same skills that you need for climbing ice are the same skills that you need for working on the mountain, whether it's navigating the ice fall, um, you know, the, 
the physical aspect of claiming, but then built into that, there is a very, there's quite a bit of structure and equipment and technique and rope that we need to make climbing safe. And none of this came out of a vacuum. You can go running and you run and one foot in front of the other and you can work on your technique, but I wouldn't have learned climbing if someone hadn't shown me the ropes quite literally, like how to belay and how to tie in and then how to use the equipment properly, the importance of a helmet, what communication means, why a foundation and first aid is essential before you go out there and sort of using that mountain mindset that my colleagues and I have brought into the mountains from a fun, happy standpoint, rather than a top down, like this is how you got to be a mountain guide, but like, hey, let's go celebrate the mountains and then learn from them. That's really interesting. So, and I've misunderstood, you're not training these people to be guides and to be professionals. You're teaching them how to become passionate rock climbers. They're totally psyched. But in the process where they, they get accreditation, they will be better trekking guides, it will work better on the mountain. And then that is a stepping stone to become a UAGM guide. So we have graduates that have gone on to become UAGM guides. We appreciate the UAGM guides that come and help out with us with that. But the goal was not to train say 10 people with UAGM certification, which is a, a four-year process, and it's 30,000 euros. I mean, it's a big deal. But rather to be like, hey, let's lift the skill level for 1,000 people over a 10-year period that they then are better trained within it. And so, um, and that's fun because we go there and we're, we're going climbing and you're having fun while you're doing it, but at the same time, you're improving your technical skills. And that was, um, it's a, climbing for me is a happy place. And so in seeing how happy it made the team I was with in 2002, it was like, let's bring the two of them together. And in working with Panuru, Funuru, um, Mingma, and a lot of the, the, the teams that were there, building this program into it to giving it legs and something to go with. Yeah. And that, I think there's something really interesting around particularly Sherpa and how their job, through the opportunity that they're given by being born where they're born and their genetics, they're tasked with fixing ropes, carrying loads and guiding people, uh, assisting people and guiding people up Mount Everest. How much do you think, this might be a difficult question, how much do you think they did that out of necessity versus desire? And do you think that your work with the Kumbu Climbing Centre has changed that? Initially, the people that worked in the mountain, predominantly male, um, they did it out of necessity. And so it was a way to earn income. And so I'll use Pemba Sharwa, uh, a young man who's a friend of mine and who's someone I've been climbing with. His grandfather worked with Hillary on Makalu, um, portered for other expeditions. His father climbed Everest in the 1980s, and he's climbed Everest four times. And so now we have third generation that are working in the mountains. And whereas... His father and his grandfather, it was work. It was akin to going in the mines in a hard, dangerous place, and you're being paid to take on risk for someone else. So a miner or a, a, a ship salvager, they're doing dangerous, hard work on behalf of someone else. But that is the foundation of what guiding is, except that we're in the mountains, and it's a fun place to be, so why not celebrate the joy of it? And so now this generation of climbers that are that are competing at climbing gyms. They're part of the Southeast Asian Climbing Sport Climbing Federation. That there's, they're, they're exploring the cliffs that are so 
prevalent in Nepal for rock climbing and sport climbing and and seeing that change from like oh we're here just to carry the loads for the the westerners to like we're going to climb and we're good at it and we're having a good time and in a sense there's perhaps that same transition that the here like we see in the alps the early climbers in the mountains were the shepherds and the crystal hunters and the woodcutters and then the people of wealth came and said well, we want to get to the top of the mountain so they then hired those people that were working in those professions to help them get to the top of the mountain and then in doing so those woodcutters crystal hunters and shepherds and their next generations you know became climbers and realized that that climbing for fun, that intrinsic joy is something they're good at. So there was that transition and perhaps that same transition is taking place in the Himalayas. Yeah. And how do you think the the local people and the people that you've become to call uh, come to call friends, how did they feel about western or well international climbing on Mount Everest and has that attitude changed? The 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 view of Everest Part of it is it's a sacred mountain. So Chumulungma, Mother Goddess of the Snows. And there are uh, peaks within the Himalayas that are sacred mountains. Machu Puchara, the fishtail, is an example. And Mount Kailas that, um, and uh, Kumbila, the three examples of peaks that one does not go climb for sacred uh, reasons. And so Everest is an exception to that, even though it is a deity within their belief system that um, people would come there. And so the... Um, the joy of it is, I guess, or the opportunities that they can then provide for their families. And so we see now second, third generation where climbers working on Everest, they earned income, and there's not a stock market. You can't buy a snazzy car in Kumbu. And I mean, how do you, what do you do with the wealth that you've earned relative to their income? And a predominantly large amount of it went to the education of their children and to private schools in Kathmandu um, and then on to secondary education and and then becoming doctors and ophthalmologists and dentists so that investing in their their children's well-being is um, through the mountains is, is a really positive thing to see but within that we see last year in 2020 um or 21, pardon me, the Nepal government sold 408 Everest permits. And this is after uh, the, the season was canceled within a few months previously in, 2019, in 2020 due to uh, COVID, because COVID hit 2019, 2020, they canceled the season, then 21, it came back in um, stronger with higher numbers than had previously been seen. And how do you feel about that? Given COVID, that it, um, it was... Uh, the effect on the local community, it became, yeah, it was, um, it, uh, it seemed a little bit early to it, but it was, the vaccines hadn't, and they just sort of come online in February, March, the first doses, they weren't available for the indigenous people that were working on the mountain. So yeah, we know now that uh, it's, people did make the mountain, but there was COVID outbreaks there. And then those that COVID then was through transmission because it is a respiratory illness and it is very real, affected a lot of these communities. Yeah. 
I actually did a podcast about that with a lady called Sophie Roberts, who's a journalist who explored the foothills and looked at the impact of tourism and COVID on those cultures, on, on the community, sorry. And it wasn't that hopeful an episode, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, so how do you feel about, I mean, it's big, heavy, and we're unpacking the whole Everest thing, but how do you feel about the cues and... I guess from a from a from an ethics standpoint, but also from understanding why people are still doing it when they're standing in queues at seven and a half thousand meters. Yeah. So fundamentally, to begin this conversation, everything has a carrying capacity. You put too many people on the boat, it will capsize. You put too many people on the bus, and it won't work. We have too many people on this planet, we won't be able to feed, clothe, and shelter them. So we have to understand. Everything has a carrying capacity. You and I have a carrying capacity of how much work we can do in a day and how much anxiety-inducing social media we can death scroll through. And you know, we all have limits on what we do. And it's particularly in the mountain place, as a mountaineer, that we see there are limits with it. And while we look at how inhospitable the environment of Everest is by cold temperature and altitude, it's also a very fragile, delicate environment. And so that dichotomy brings a little bit of a challenge on there. And if we look at how mountains are managed, and to be very clear with that, um, say Denali in North America, they issue something to the tune of 1,300 permits a year between April and July. And so they're They've done a carrying capacity on it. They're addressing the guide businesses that work there, making sure that they have, they're accredited and they know what they're doing. If you're a um, self-taught climber, you have to make sure that you have the skills to get up the mountain safely and not create a rescue that then puts other people's lives in, in, in the way of it. And so, yeah, as climbers, we like to be anarchists. Like, I want to do my own thing and I'm not going to listen to anyone else. But we do have to compromise a little bit for our fellow climbers in the sake of the mountain. And this mindset would be most welcome to the Nepali civil aviation and tourism. And I've had this conversation with them that, one, study the mountain, figure out what the carrying capacity is, which is from a very a physical sense, like how many people can you have on there, from a human waste sense, like what do we do with our, um, our, our, our feces and urine, what do we do with the, the, the food that we eat and, and the, just the mess that we as humans create? And then how do we address the skills of the people that are coming to climb the mountain? And then how do we collectively understand the guide services and their ability to do that? And to date, it doesn't seem that um, they've taken concrete steps towards that. And this conversation, those three principles I've and debriefing from Everest 2012 and being very clear with the Ministry of Tourism as an expedition leader to Everest, and this is what would do well. And um, rather than having a liaison officer that's kind of attached to each expedition, it's it's a kind of a job of privilege, you get assigned to it, and but rather having a, a, a group of people that work within the mountains, the gendarmerie like it would be here in, in France or rangers in there, and people knowing um, where it is, um, where they're out in the mountain, and having and addressing that, how many people can safely climb on the mountain without taking away from that aesthetic 
value that we see in it. And so that getting to that point of, of doing it. And then once that carrying capacity study has been addressed, like how many people can the mountain safely climb on there and aesthetically still have a, a, a meaningful experience, you then have to figure out which people are going to do on it. And you can do it by lottery, which is completely random. You can do it by price, which is the $11,000 permit. You can do it a combination of the two of them. and Or you can do experience. And so how do you figure out who's going to get a chance to climb it? And um, those are externalities that we put into the situation. So a market externality would be, say, if you're a polluter, you have to pay a certain amount of going into the carbon fund. So where the government says, this is what you have to do. And that changes the business model there. And so these market externalities in the sense of what the Nepali government is doing and what they're charging and, and making sure people are, that changes how it, how the people on the mountain, but something's going to have to come to a point because it's not sustainable with the amount of people that are up there, 408 permits. And then each of those permits has, is, is a Western um, or a non-Nepali climber that requires a, an infrastructure of food, of rope, and then oxygen. And all of those things create more burden on the mountain. Yeah, and I'm, I'm deliberately probing, but what do you think the answer is to that very complicated problem? It would be wonderful to see um, a a group from Tribhuvan University in Nepal partner with, say, University Alaska Fairbanks that studies mountain climbing and glaciology, a school here in the Alps, and, and coming together and, and, and doing a carrying capacity study. So they've been done on Mont Blanc, they've been done on Elbrus, they've been done um, on, uh, on Denali using those in examples. And now we see that going into like having to register to climb El Capitan, which is, you know, we, a lot of us cut our teeth on that iconic cliff. And so how is how, how do those come in there? But there should be this... Um, a far-reaching understanding of what the mountain is. And so the, from the physical sense, how it's changing due to climate change, um, what the aesthetic value people have to go there, what do they want to see and what do they want to experience, how do, how do X amount of people at Camp 2 and the waste that they create, what is that downstream effect because of glaciers a frozen river but you know what can be done with that how many people can safely go up to the mountain whereas say on Denali you have a season that runs from April to July and it's self-supported and so you have a lot of a lot of leeway within that and how you want to climb it and then making sure that you're not going up there in flip-flops and a t-shirt that you have double boots and you know what a crevasse is and you know how to to travel safely that in in Nepal, they're, they're like, the, the challenge with Everest is it comes down to a 10-day window. And so here you have 408 people all vying for the summit on a 10-day window. When the jet stream lifts to the north and the monsoon hasn't hit. Because you have the jet stream in the, wind, in the winter and it's just 
scouring the mountain as it lifts further north and then you get up there, you climb the mountain and then the monsoon comes in and it's, it's warm and it's precipitating again. So that's the challenge is that the physicality, the weather, the inclement nature of that mountain forces all those people to climb in a very small window of time. And in terms of cleanup, I mean, the mountain's renowned for being a dumping ground for trash and O2 and all sorts of other stuff. How do we solve that problem? And on this is a, is a good, an uplifting moment within Nepal because great steps forward have been made. Um, in the 90s, there were a lot of cleanup expeditions that came. That was their um, reason to be, to like, hey, we're, you know, Everest wasn't a new thing or a sensational thing, but it was like, hey, we're going to do a cleanup expedition. We're going to help out with this. All the climbers have to post a bond when they go in there to, um, to address waste um, and, and garbage and things like that. And while, yeah, there's, um, there's a way that by using the money that's generated from the fees that then you hire people to carry garbage out from previous expeditions. So if you're there now, you're carrying your own garbage out. But detritus that was left from the 70s and 80s and 90s needs to be attended to. Some things of value, say like oxygen cylinders at the South Coal, they're hauled down. I mean, you can get good money for, as a souvenir. So, um, And the good bottles are still refillable. And the refilling technique, it's, it used to be they'd go back to St. Petersburg for the Poisk bottles, and then they were filled in Kathmandu. And now there's a, there's a, a, a condenser, I'm not sure what it's called, but to refill these cylinders with 2,000 liters of oxygen, it's actually in the kumbu. So that's lessening that impact with it. But still, the, the, the impact of all those people on there needs to be addressed. And the immediate one is, is human waste at Camp 2 because that then goes into the glacier and then um, the glacier on that. At base camp, um, human waste is carried out, um, solid waste is carried out, but it's put into seasonal water flows. It's not really... We're just moving the problem away. So when the monsoon comes, those then, they can go back into it. So um, you know, whether there's a, a composting system or a methane producing some sort of, how does that get done at Gorak Shep? But um, there's a specific group of people that carry that waste out of the mountain. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Drifting around the clouds for a second there. No, but it's this is. I mean, we could do three hours on Everest, and I'm conscious of that, and need to make sure we don't. So, I guess my last question on Everest is: Why do you think people climb it, and do you think it's a good motivation? Yeah, um, we are human. We're vain. We're driven by our ego, and if you're like, oh no, I'm. I'm self-effacing and, you know, yeah, for, if you're a, a monk, whatever you're, however you see the world and you've eschewed all material things in life and you're just living there selflessly, then that is. But we're, um, yeah, we, we do things because it, it makes us feel good. It makes us look good to other people and that's vanity. And so, yeah, you come into a cocktail lounge and you're like, yeah, I've done the seven summits and there's like no one else has done that and you've got a one up on them. And so we're driven by that. And it's, yeah, the, um, and to be transparent with that and 
like, and I have a conversation with Alex Honnold, like, yeah, you did the South Aid because you were the only one who could do it. And it was the most gnar and to own that, which is, and it was good because he's very clear about that. Whereas other people can be self-effacing and kind of burnishing a, a, a false modesty to it or a humble brag to it, but just to be like straight up. But humans want to go climb Everest because they want to shine to their help, fellow humans. Yeah, and, and earlier when we were talking about surfing, you know, you talked about how you try to live a life that's judgment-free and balancing that ego. Have you, and, and you seem like, you know, and I've spent a week with you now, very humble, very gracious and entirely judgment-free. Have you always been like that or has that been something that you've learned through experience? I'm not... By, yeah, I, it's a constant daily practice, and um, and we're we're seeing more of that now, in particular the last three years. I mean, this is a moment of historical importance. We are living through something, as we commented over coffee this morning, that's going to be written about in the history books. I mean, it's up there with, um, yeah, the the wars that were in the previous century, and now here we are in this century. This yeah, we had COVID, and how does that tie into globalism, uh, um, the inner hyper-connected world that we live in through computers and social media and, and computer companies. And so there's, um, yeah, quite a bit of, um, but yeah, to be, it's something that I practice at. And then it's also um, a couple, to check my thoughts, to be like, okay, I'm not going to rush to that judgment. And I have no idea what that person is going through. And that I've had to go through moments of intensity and doubt and depression and loss and everything like that, that someone else could be in that same point. And they're, um, but I will, you know, if someone's over the line and they're egregious, then there is a point with that, that I will speak out about that and not to be judgmental, but to be more clarity. Like, yeah, the word in the United States, we're, we're split, we're fractured, we're divisive and, and, we're not, and we need to work together for the betterment of humanity and not just ourselves, but seven generations down the line because what we're doing today will affect other people. But, um, and then check yourself. And then when I encounter people that are um, ostentatious, braggadocios, and full of themselves and arrogant and, and, you know, filled with vitriol, then I'm like, I don't want to be that person that's making another person feel that way. So, and it's, it is a, it is a balance. Because as, as where I am now, as a mentor to other climbers, and how do we direct them and how do we build them in there and what is, there is guidelines and expectations that my parents had on me and that the people that I climbed with brought to me that at that young at that young age and and to have it be constructive and not negative and so the feedback is a gift and see it like that if someone's mentioning something don't get your hackles up and be like they're dissing me and screw them off with you and all that but it's like oh yeah maybe a little moment of self-reflection in there and you talk about you talked about mentorship just there. You know, you're clearly a mentor and you're a mentor to many people. And I think people hold your opinion in, in extremely high regard. Do you see that 
as a positive thing or a burden um, and how do you cope with that from a place of responsibility yeah it, it the responsibility is the key component to that and it um people can have false expectations for you and based on a a minimal amount of information maybe seeing a movie or seeing a podcast listening to a podcast or going to a slide presentation or something like that and then that is who that person is but one we're all human we're we're all fallible. We're all, we all make mistakes and we all need to accept our own mistakes and accept mistakes in other people. That's kind of a, a good foundation with that. But within it, I kind of see life in these quartiles. And so this first quarter of our life, we're under our parents' wing. And so when we're infants, we couldn't be anywhere without the nurture, care, and love of our parents and specifically our mothers. And that that love that we get in the first six months, six years of our life is really important to our mental well-being later on. And then we become crybabies in age two, and then we move on, and you know, when our teenager, and we have the whole world figured out, and everything's fine, and like, don't tell me what to do, mom and dad. I'm on my own. I'm going to go. And that's fine. It's a trans transition. And then you come through education, and then the next 20 years, you find out what you want to do in life. And identify that and everyone has a calling in life and it's certainly not extreme alpinism for everyone it's it's it can be literature it can be parenting it can be religion it can be art it can be construction i mean whatever you do become the very best at what you want to do and that that initial 20 that second quartile of life you become really good at that and then and that third quartile, you perform and you are the best and you, you really do well with it. And then that fourth quartile, that last part of your life, you then take that experience and bring it back to someone in that second quartile. And so I'm at that point where I had mentors who were, that had seen the world that influenced me when I was in that developmental, like identifying what I wanted to do. Um, before I was good at it that helped me become good at it yeah god that's an interesting way to put it um yeah and you're seeing you know you you have this people look at you as the best of the best of your trade and your craft and I think you know you talked a bit about films earlier in podcasts and those are often made to shine made in a way that makes us shine bright but also shows us in moments of vulnerability because that's what makes things entertaining what are your flaws no oh. oh. well hey. <laughs> yeah they're um yeah the um i i i'm i'm i've i know that i've hurt people before and that it hasn't been intentional but that I recognize that and what can I do to make amends and what can we do to 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 work through that and um that uh yeah they're and being difficult on myself and being the it's easy to criticize others but your own self-criticism that can you use it as a tool to improve who you are rather than as a, a self-shaming and, and a, 
like a this door into depression and you want to get away from that so um well within that there's my life is very complex in 1999 my best friend died next to me in an avalanche and you know for 10 years we did expeditions and then in the aftermath of alex lowe's death october 5th 1999 jennifer and i grew in love Falling isn't what climbers do, right? We grow things. We build love. Like falling in love is like, no, I mean, you fell. You tripped up. No, so we grew in love. And within that, being there for Jennifer and the three boys that were left behind by Alex's death. And that, to me, has been the um, life's greatest gift, to be there and to see these um, three young men grow into being adults and understanding of who their father is. And within that, our son Max creating the film Torn um, with, uh, about our life. And so it's been a very emotional journey. It's a very vulnerable journey. I mean, everything that is emotional to me, the, the rowdiness of my youth in the 90s and that feeling of invincibility and the rock and roll that, like what Chamonix was in the 90s, like people parapenting, skiing, and all that. Like, Let's just push it one degree more each day, and eventually does that catch up to you? And it did. And you know, we were trying to ski the south face of Shishapangma. That was a big goal. Um, and then coming together, getting married in 2001, raising the boys, um, seeing them through high school, um, helping them become men, um, being part of their education process and where they are now. And for Max to take his insight as a creative and a film director and to ask these questions about our family of Jennifer, his brothers Max, um, his brothers Sam and Isaac, and myself, of what what was it like to go through this grief. And so within that film, the, the, the rowdiness of the 90s and what Alex and I were doing, and then the loss, the, the making peace with death, the falling in love, and then the the grief, the the burden of survivor's guilt, the trauma of of a violent accident, all like how do we how do we accept those and what part of the human psyche? Because they're they're omnipresent for all humans. Every human's gonna go through that same thing, but how do we not to use the word process them because it sounds like what you do to 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 food to make it edible, but rather how do we welcome them within our psyche and what tools do we have and what friends, a, a, a metaphorical tool, do we have that help us make peace with loss and grief? And I, I ask this wholly kindly. To what extent has that experience and the aftermath defined who you are? There's there's no one single point in my life that is any more different than October fifth, nineteen ninety nine. It is, um, it's still emotional thinking about it, and, um, you know, it. In ninety two, Muggs lost his life on Denali, May twenty first, and uh, in a crevasse fall. But it was like the first time that stuff happens. I mean, we were you build this invincibility like well that happened to them because they weren't skilled enough or they didn't have enough experience or they're at the place at the wrong time and you always you have to build that mental strength to 
challenge yourself in these inhospitable, dangerous places. And um, but yeah, it was. And at this time, it was just um, you know we were on on the glacier, walking on a acclimatization in a massive ice avalanche. 2,000 meters above us released with blocks of snow and ice and wind. And um, I ran a different way. I looked to see my friends three times and then tossed by it. And then it settled. And it was this massive cloud of dust and snow particles. And it finally settled. And it was like I'm walking around. And I remember looking over my shoulder because we all went from making calculated decisions about what we're doing to this snap moment like we're in the very ancient part of our brain where survival is like you're just surviving you're not oh should i run this way or that way faster this way better like you're just trying to get through it and and then it was just this avalanche and this sea of white and as it settled down in the the blue sky and the sun came out again and i saw my friends, Chris Erickson, one of them was on that trip, were looking around and it was just like this pit because David and Alex were no longer there. And we couldn't, they were buried under a massive amount of snow. So, yeah. I think the obvious question to ask right now is how do we justify it? But I'm not going to ask you that question because... I don't think it's fair or right, and I think it gets asked a lot to mountaineers and to people like yourself, and, you know, I think people have maybe heard the answer before. I think instead what I'd like to ask you is, because we said we agreed that this was going to be a positive conversation... Yeah, <laughs> we're just switching around. <laughs> um, especially given the way that the world is now and the way that things are going, what has mountaineering and specifically actually travel and culture and people given you and what has it taught you? We have an opportunity to travel. We're fortunate. It's a privilege. And when we get to see other cultures, other people on this planet, we see the slow tale of human evolution. And so now we're so connected. I mean, in 12 hours, you can be in the United States or you can be in Nepal. From here we are in Chamonix. And it's just the world is small. And prior to that, we thought the world was enormous. And it was this, you know, we initially saw it as the center of the universe and some went around us and, and we didn't really understand the, the physical nature of it. But travel gives you an understanding of other cultures, other belief systems, religion, practices with that. And while we look different and we eat different food and we, we see the world in a different way, we still are connected through the bond of love, family, community, empathy, not being violent, all those same core fundamental human emotions are present through all cultures. And finding that connection to within them is a really, that's one of the joys of travel. Yeah. It is. And so now that your life is different and you're not trying to, you know, climb the hardest thing there is to do in Chamonix anymore, what brings you joy? Ooh, joy is um, 
the seeing friends, seeing community, seeing happiness. Um, to me, one of the simple joys is going to a climbing gym or a swim center and at the right time of day, at either one of those, you can hear the kids laughing and or, or the playground outside of the school and just kids, this that laughter and joy of children at play. And yeah, they haven't been burdened with taxes and politics and war and racism and divisiveness. They're still children and they have these those peals of laughter those simple moments bring me happiness, I guess. <laughs> you know, that gives me hope in the sense. But then being able to go out and go climbing. And while I'm not climbing at the, the level I was in my 20s and 30s, then there's still that same intrinsic reward that comes to me, that feeling of positivity is even more so that I, I can... Instead of me having to climb 7A or 7C or whatever, I can be happy climbing 6 or something like that. This is European grades. But still finding that, that connectivity and that, that moment when you get three body lengths above the ground and risk is omnipresent. And so you have to make decisions. And things, for me, they change on a probably a chemical basis. And they give that that chance to, to do that. And that to me is how I defrag the hard drive, so to say, and how I undo this oversubscribed, hyper-connected society that we're in. And while we've been here in Chamonix and you and I are working hard, I mean, we are a team. You're getting the camera out, you're in the snow, I'm doing this, we're working that. We want to make good images and, and it's an art form and I've enjoyed that process with all the creatives that I've worked with but there needs to be a point where we undo that and so Chris and I in a break yesterday went up and climbed three pitches, of <laughs> climbing a few pitches and just laughing and catching up and seeing where it was and that was sort of our um, our our way to rejuvenate and sort of repower the, the mental batteries, so to say, and that, that we all may find those things. And so when you get a chance to do something for yourself and you come back, relax with a breath of fresh air, and then at the same time, realizing the value of communicating with people. And it, um, to, you might not have the same view, but sit down and have a conversation where you and I, we're, we're here, we're in this room, we heard the ambulance drive by, we're present, and we know each other. We've been friends now for a few years, and it's different than being interpreted through a, a screen. So podcasts in person have a far more real, visceral feeling to me, and for you as a, as a podcast author, there is that, that part to it. So, the, um, But the, the human connectivity and the appreciation for other people for what they do and as long as it's you're not harming and violent then they're appreciate what people do and if you're a chalk artist on the sidewalk I love that I mean it's like this is your calling and, and you're sharing it with people and it's it's transitory you're a, a monk in Nepal and you're doing sand diagrams for days only to have them be swept up and and sort of a, a reminder of the transitory 
non-attachment view of life that is embodied by those people of that uh, culture. Yeah, and, and you talk about connection to people and community. You know, seeing your social media channels over the last while, it's clear to me that you've you know taken up a banner um, and a, and are using that that large following and platform for purposes that are outside of climbing. What was the spark that ignited all of that, and how do you feel about it all? My care for other people, in, in that sense, was instilled into me by my parents. And so in the previous podcast, we talked about where my mother came from and what she had gone through in life, and then with my father. And then coming of age in the 60s and the civil rights movement and kind of understanding 100 years after slavery had been fought over and lost in the United States that we need to make amends, we need to reconcile, we need to, you can't just say, oh, it was there, you have to actively do things to, to address the situation. And I think that is, um, and I'm not furthering a, a political or a, a very an, an agenda one way, but it just be like, what can we do that is goodness and what can we do that helps other people and not to be debilitating or antagonistic to be understanding and respectful of who they are. Yeah, and it seems you're willing to be more vulnerable is not quite the right word, but you're willing to expose yourself to criticism, not necessarily more these days, but the views that you're sharing online about things that are nothing to do with climbing necessarily. You must get some flack for that. And do you have days where you think this just isn't worth it? Oh, it's, um, <clears throat> yeah. And um, speaking up on things that are of, of importance, I mean, George Floyd is a, a flashpoint in the United States history. And it's um, systemic racism is part of the United States. And whether it's redlining housing zones, um, keeping people of color out of the real estate market or education system, all these things are they're in there. And to recognize them is the first step to bringing them around. So yeah, they're, um, when I post something that is um, a specifically around Indigenous Peoples Day and a white person will reply, you're making me feel uncomfortable. You don't need to do this. Stick to climbing. Stay in your lane. I don't want this. And I'm like, well, yeah, you're getting a little bit of free entertainment from my social media. It's what they are. They're entertainment devices. And But, I mean, think back. I mean, for a millennial, colonials, people that look like you and me, Matt, white people from Europe, have wrecked havoc on this planet. Done a lot of really malicious, unhealthy things. And now I'm not trying to make people feel shameful or guilty about it, but we do need to, to come to terms with it. And we need to hopefully have a reawakening where we're like, yeah, we've got 7.4 billion people on this planet. We need to feed, clothe, and shelter all those people in, in an order of necessity for them to have a, a quality of life that is without suffering. And, and part of that is, you know, we see now with income disparity and, and how things are, um, it, it's, a very, it's a very challenging world. And so 
when I get pushback from the people that don't see the world at me and people that are angry and hateful in comments, yeah, it's not nice. It creates anxiety. But to a certain degree, if I'm bending the arc of the moral universe in honor of people that have inspired me, that have done the right thing, then it's worth that the anxiety and anger that it creates. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, just before we draw to a close, right at the start, you talked about accessibility, specifically regarding, you know, Chamonix and its lifts and, and how we access the hills. Accessibility is a word that we're using a lot at the moment. Um, and I'm not talking about the UK specifically or America, but access to mountains and adventure is as we understand that term specifically a, a very white male pastime and pursuit is that still the case how do we combat it and are we doing a good job there's um with any great challenge there's always lots of opportunity so one we recognize the challenge that yes it has not always been inviting and and welcoming to people of color or marginalized communities in the mountain whether it's um adaptive athletes or adaptive people or um, people that had historical negative connotation with being outdoors in the say in a forest type setting with that so um, the beauty of being outdoors is that it's restorative and regenerative and by making space in the outdoor space for other people, welcoming them in is a really a key part to it. And um, one of the projects I'm helping with on the sidelines is with my good friend Philip Henderson, who's leading an all African American expedition to Everest. And while someone from the core might like, well, it's you know Everest has been done, but moreover, there's only been six or eight black people that have gone to the summit of Everest. And so it's there's a disparity there, um, particularly when you look at um, population percentiles and demographics and things like that. But it's also representational. So imagine coming back with this wonderful story and a school child will see climbers up there and this teamwork of like working together. And so their idol isn't a basketball player or a football player which is team sports and are based on rules and regulation and they feed on human antagonism, whereas climbing is about supporting your other person. And the challenge is not a set of rules, a clock and everything like that. It's the environment. You have to team together. And that story as told through the lens of African-Americans and being able to share it on a global scale, moments like that bring representation to the forefront. Yeah. And so you do think it's working or do you think we've got a long way to go? We have a long way to go, but it's working. And it's um, there's seeing affinity groups within the, the, the community. So whether you're um, LGBTQ or you're um, uh, wherever you're at, um, a person of color, that, that you see people that can then welcome you in there. And then if you are... a white person like you and I that you welcome them there and say hey how's it going and this is for all of us and what we get from this is is 
happiness and connectivity to other humans and may we share that and understanding that there's been a lot of bad history that we're not going to solve it with this but we're taking the first step yeah yeah and you talk about quartiles and, and the different stages we go through in our lives which is very interesting and i've never thought about that before or heard it said like that so you're at a specific time in your life now what is it you want to achieve with the rest of your life? Well, on a personal level, um, to become fluent in Spanish, to improve my um, piano playing, and then to ski across Yellowstone. So skiing across Yellowstone in the winter, we start March 21st this year. It's going to be a wonderful trip with uh, our sons and um, my friend Rick Ridgeway, his son, and... Um, and we're going to, it's been like, I have these bucket list goals with that. So personal things aside, but from a collective sense that, that we think about what our actions today are for generations down the line. And that within that, we see um, climate crisis, um, how the intersectionality of climate to marginalized community and how people of marginalized communities, whether it's with climate or COVID, are the ones that bear the brunt of the brunt and the burden and the pain of those things. Um, to be within that and to make our world a better place. And someone might, you know, pass it. Oh, you're being an idealist. You're living out there, and it's not. A, and, and particularly, I mean, you know, we the last. Four years in the United States under the administration, it was very, very difficult. And it was based on grievance and anger and hate. And it further drove our society apart and accelerated and fueled by social media and, and algorithms and, and false narratives and things like that. And how do we overcome that and work towards a planet where humans are in this, in, in a very happy place? And so... People are like, oh, you're just, this is, your, your utopian fantasy will never happen. Well, granted, we can just, we'll, we'll move that off the table, but why not try? I don't, yeah, I couldn't <laughs> agree anymore. Right? And we're trying here. So if you've listened to this podcast and, and, and you're, um, yeah, be good to your fellow humans and be good to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that sort of thing a lot and like the amount of adversity that our ancestors have faced and how hopeless things might have seemed for them, must have seemed for them on so many occasions. We're just experiencing that now. Yeah. It's our turn. And maybe it will all be okay or maybe it won't, but how can we not just live as if it is going to be okay? We need to, you know, oh, I could go on about this bit for hours, but our great fight is invisible. It's not an enemy that we can see. It's not, for, for you and I, it's not hunger. You know, it's something that is a long way away and it's, it's impossible to see it, so it's difficult to actually fight it. But it, there's so much purpose to be found in grabbing hold of it and fighting it. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> I think. Cool. Yeah. So, as a close, I always ask people two questions. I've asked them to you before, and I'll be interested to see if the answers are different this time. Um, what scares you? Um, the 
climate change that I'm we went from thinking that we would hit peak oil like in the 70s that we we're going to run out of oil but now we realize we're peak carbon or carbon budget that we're going to be more efficient at finding carbon-based fuels to to use but the more they go in the atmosphere the more change we're seeing and, and what you know will we be able to sustain life on this planet going forward um and yeah 100 percent guaranteed life on mars is not sustainable but can we turn earth into mars which is unsustainable it's this hot cold place that doesn't full of chemicals that don't support life we might be doing that so rather than going out to space let's identify things that we can work with here so that's that that scares me and because it is so all-encompassing it, it, it touches on communities around the world and that it highlights how interconnected we all are and within that the atmosphere is now our generation the tragedy of the commons so i'll take care of my garden but that it wasn't over there and it was a as a philosophical economic debate that many of us are familiar with the tragedy of the commons where they had a, a pasture in england and that no one would care for because it wasn't there and we now see the atmosphere which is oxygen which is even more important than water and food to survive we are compromising that so Kind of that's that means I'm worried about it, but I'm still a real optimist somewhere or another. Well, yeah, and then final question: What brings you hope? What brings me hope is um, this morning on BBC News there was a a young girl in India that made a there's an ironing vendors that would go around and iron clothes, and they'd always traditionally used charcoal, and so she designed a solar powered bicycle with a little cabin on it and it has batteries and there's a, a, a panel and then they're they're ironing and it was just like this here's this child and that was like but that was just one small example of what hope is and that um for the generation that's coming forward there um our sons and 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 your children and, and leo's kids that um that sense of anxiety is is there whereas when I came of age, it was like, yeah, we went to the moon, we went to the Mariana Trench, we climbed Everest, we did all these like cool things, right? And But now it's, what are those cool things? And relieving that anxiety that this next generation has and giving them the tools and the hope to address them. Yeah. I'm going to ask one more cheeky question just because I can. <laughs> what should I have asked you that I didn't? Oh... Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, gosh, there is something trivial like, oh, what's your favorite food or something like that? But no, it's, um, they're, uh, yeah, they're, I, you ask great questions and it was a good far ranging intellectual conversation about things on there. So, um, yeah, there's, yeah, there you ask great questions. I wouldn't, I can't, I can't answer that one. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to be cheeky. No, it's such a yeah. privilege to sit down and I never thought I'd get one conversation with you. So to have done two on camera, but now 
dozens off camera is 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 a privilege. So thank you very very much. Yeah, thank you, Matt, and the people there with the Adventure Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Adventure Podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is a Cold House production, produced and distributed by Ola O'Murray and Alex Hall. For more information, you can keep up to date on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast or email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk if you want to say hello or have a guest suggestion.